Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Parson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Lane Kenworthy, professor of sociology at the University of California, San Diego. His research focuses on social policy, including poverty, inequality, mobility, and economic growth in the United States and other rich countries. He's the author of many academic articles and six books, including Social Democratic America and, most recently, How Big Should Government Be?, co-authored with John Bakija, Peter Lindert, and Jeff Madrick. Professor Kenworthy, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I'm happy to be here. You know, I came. I first came across your work a, a few years back when I saw your book, Social Democratic America. And right away, I was struck by the title because social democracy certainly didn't seem doesn't seem to describe the America that I know. And so, I was wondering: is that a more of a descriptive title or a prescriptive one? Would you say? I would say that it's a prescriptive one and also a predictive one. Um, so I, I let me let me step back and sure. say what I think social democracy means or consists of. It's a it's a term like any other that means different things to different people. I use it to refer to a, a country's economic system that's mainly capitalist, so mostly private ownership and market driven, but that's complemented by an expansive and generous set of public insurance programs, meaning both transfers and services. And also, I should say, and this distinguishes uh, contemporary or what you might call modern social democracy from its counterpart of a generation or so ago, there also tends to be a a commitment to a, a high employment rate and so part of what the public services and also the transfers are, are oriented toward or geared toward is trying to ensure that uh, that you have a lot of people in, in paid work. Um, so does that characterize the United States? Well, you know, not so much, um, but certainly more than in the uh, early part of the 20th century. So if you think about 100 years or so ago, we're a very, very different country and um, and we have a lot more public insurance, a lot, lot more government services, uh, but we're nowhere close to what are usually taken to be the exemplars of, um, of social democracy, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, maybe Finland, and to some extent, some of the continental European countries. But Sweden and Denmark are probably the, the best uh, contemporary representatives. So they do much more than we do, but, but we lie kind of on a continuum. I don't really think of this as a qualitative difference. Um, as I said, we we do much more of this sort of thing than we did a century ago, but not nearly as much. So um, I think uh, having a set of uh, of government programs more like what Denmark and Sweden do would make us a better country. It would help us better address problems of economic insecurity, of uh, inequality of opportunity, and of what we might call shared prosperity, which is kind of a dynamic version of uh, of income inequality. So the the fact that although our uh, our economy has grown reasonably rapidly over the last generation, not as fast as it did in the 50s and 60s, but plenty fast enough 
too little of that uh, economic growth has gotten to ordinary Americans, people in the middle class and below. So these these three problems are not the only problems the country faces, but I think they're they're really core and key. And I think the evidence suggests we could be doing a, a better job in in addressing them if we had something more like. Uh, a more fully developed set of social democratic policies. So that's the prescriptive part. There's also a, a predictive part to the argument to this uh, to this book, Social Democratic America. It's contained just in in one chapter, but it's about the the politics. And I feel fairly confident in predicting that, uh, let's say, half a century from now, um, we will our set of of government programs will look more like what exists in Denmark and Sweden today than like what we currently have. So essentially the way I see it is uh, we, we have these problems. We have a set of government programs that policymakers, elected policymakers, some of them anyway, think are likely to help. We also have a growing body of evidence that suggests that they do in fact help and with little or no cost to, let's say, economic growth or, or other um, things that we might want uh, in our economy or in our society. Um, from time to time, actually on a fairly regular basis, policymakers propose putting new policies in place, new programs in place, or expanding existing ones. Most of the time those proposals fail, they get blocked, but occasionally they get passed, and it's kind of hard to predict when that'll happen. Um, Sometimes it's in a period where the, our left party, the Democrats, um, have pretty firm control over both houses in Congress and the presidency. So that was true in the 1930s. It was true in 1964 and 65 when a lot of Lyndon Johnson's legislation gets passed. It was true in 2009. Um, so that's, that's one circumstance where you tend to get big advances. But lots of other stuff happens in between. So we expanded Social Security in the 1950s, the earned income tax credits put in place in 1975, Medicaid's expanded in the 1980s and again in 1998. Um, so there are lots of, uh, of other points or moments when uh, seemingly little things happen. But you add those up over a fairly long period of time and all of a sudden you're looking at a a government that taxes and spends something like a third of the GDP, which is what we have today, compared to something more like 10% uh, a century ago. Mm. Um, in Denmark and Sweden and some other continental European countries, it's more like around 50%. So there still is a, a big difference. But so my my view of what's likely to happen over the next 50 years is more or less a continuation of what's happened over the last 100 years, which right. is lots and lots of periods where there's no advance uh, and a lot of frustration uh, for folks who tend to be on the left side of the political spectrum, but other moments when stuff does pass and very little uh, reversal. So uh, a key feature of most democratic countries, but arguably even more so ours than others, is that once programs get put into place, they tend to, to stick around. That's partly because they're popular. They they serve a need and they tend not to have massive costs, you know, bad effects on economic growth. Um, so even even when uh, uh, right parties or coalitions come into power in European countries, they seldom do very much to to reverse um, 
social programs, public right. insurance programs. They, they cut them, but it's it's often at the margins. And here in the United States, that that's largely because they're popular. Here in the U.S., there's an additional set of barriers, which has to do with the structure of our government. We have all these what political scientists call veto points. So we have a lot of separation of powers, in other words. Uh, and so it's it's pretty easy for a minority to block changes. The Republicans are dealing with this now um, with their their proposal to uh, uh, get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Right. They, they simply can't get rid of the entire thing because even though they have a majority in the three key bodies, they don't have a filibuster-proof majority in the, the Senate. And so Democrats will almost certainly block anything they can in the way of, of rollbacks. Uh, there are certain things that uh, that Republicans can do through the reconciliation process in the Senate. Um, so anyway, that's a it's a very long version of the story. But, sure. Uh, uh, there you have it. Well, you know, I you you and I I think definitely agree that this trajectory has been a positive one, and, and I certainly hope that that at some point within the next fifty years we get to where some of those uh, some of those other countries that you mentioned are at. But you know, they're a number of conservatives uh, argue that while we certainly are probably better off than we were a century ago, things started to go wrong in the 1960s. They'll cite Medicare, Medicaid, the whole Great Society program under President Johnson. And, and their argument is essentially that this created uh, what, what they feel is an ultimately unsustainable entitlement state. I mean, do you uh, – I'm wondering if you, well, how you feel about that, what you think about that argument. Right. So it's a, it's been a very powerful argument politically here in the United States, and and it's a fairly forceful one in other countries too. It, this issue gets debated uh, in in all rich democratic nations, but but it's been more powerful, arguably, here in the U.S. than uh, than elsewhere, um, and and that's for a good reason. Um, it's theoretically quite plausible. Um, that is to say, if you have higher tax rates, for example, because you need to raise money to pay for these programs, and indeed countries should, um, I, don't, I don't think anyone who favors these types of policies is arguing that um, over the long run you should uh, pay for all this stuff but not raise the revenues right. uh, uh, in order to fund it. Um, so if you have higher tax rates, that creates some uh, financial disincentives for uh, more work effort, for investing in new businesses, expanding uh, other ones, uh, you know, investing more in education. Um, and on the other end, if you've got very generous government transfer programs, you risk creating disincentives for, uh, uh, for work for ordinary people. That is to say, if they can get by okay, uh, without having to work much or work at all, then there's going to be a temptation to do that. Um, so the real question is, but, but well, uh, I should say, on the other hand, these programs can have beneficial effects. Um, and we also don't know how strong or, or how large an impact the, the disincentive uh, portions of this um, how, how this plays out in, in, in a national economy. So the, the real question is, what do we see empirically? What does the evidence tell us? Um, so we've got a plausible theoretical prediction, but what do we know from the data? And this is largely or mainly what uh, this more recent book, How Big Should Our Government Be, tries right. to address. So there's a chapter by Peter Lindert uh, on uh, what we know about the impact of uh, public insurance or, or transfer and, and service programs 
on economic growth, and there's a chapter by John Bakia on what we know about the overall size of government, whether you measure it by taxes or spending. I, I should emphasize here that we don't really address the question of regulation. This is uh, entirely about um, about the, the financial measure of uh, the size of government mm-hmm. uh, in terms of taxes and spending. Um, okay, so what do we what do we find in this research? Um, and, and I should say that mainly the book is about surveying existing research. It's not about new analyses for the most part. Um, well, there are, there are a variety of ways we might, uh, we might try to test this hypothesis. One very common one that you see journalists and pol- policymakers sometimes make is to do a, a comparison over time of the U.S. experience in the recent past. So conservatives will often say, look at the 1980s. We had pretty strong growth, and that followed the tax cuts of 1981 and 1986. So therefore, uh, smaller government must be good for the economy. Progressives or liberals or Democrats will come back and say, okay, but then look at the 1990s. The tax rates went back up, and we had just as strong or by some measures even stronger economic growth or a stronger macro economy. Um, And then things didn't go so well when George W. Bush in the early 2000s cut taxes again, and, and some will um, go along and push that further and say that that may have contributed to the, the deep economic uh, uh, recession in 2008-2009. Well, all of that is pretty suggestive. It's problematic because it's a fairly short period of time and you have so many moving parts to a national economy, uh, but it is suggestive. So we can do better um, if we uh, either go back much further over time in a single country like the U.S. or compare across countries. Uh, this gives us more analytical leverage, if you will. Um, and the, the the story is essentially this. If you look at, so I mentioned earlier that in the United States, we've gone from being what most people would characterize as a small government country. Taxes and spending were about 10% of GDP in the early decades of the 20th century, and now it's about a, a third of GDP. So we've gone from a small government country to, let's say, a medium-sized government country. Um, if uh, If bigger government was bad for economic growth, you'd expect to see at some point over that period of roughly 100 years, a a big decline or a a noteworthy decline in the rate of economic growth. And we really haven't experienced that. So it is true that economic growth was faster in the 50s and 60s in the early part of the 1970s than it has been since then. Uh, But arguably, that was simply catching up from the depression and, uh, and a little bit of the war and had you know, a little bit to do with the fact that uh, we sort of sat alone at the top of the world economy because most of Western Europe was devastated due to the war. So it was sort of an exceptional period. But basically, if you look at GDP per capita, um, we've grown at uh, something close to 2% a year on average. And there really hasn't been much sustained deviation from that rate of growth over the last century. You see a similar pattern in other countries, like, for example, Sweden and Denmark. They go from being fairly small governments, let's say small to medium size in the early part of the 20th century to now what most people would call big government countries. Again, about 50% or so of GDP goes through taxes and spending. But same story, no decline in the rate of economic growth over that very long period of time. So that's none of this is proof positive, but it very strongly suggests that uh, that at the size that modern democratic countries have reached, there's no strong evidence of adverse effects of uh, 
uh, right. of more taxing and spending. You can you can also compare across countries, same basic conclusion, um, and you can we've got pretty good data on. Uh, spending on particular programs like public in, insurance transfers and uh, and government services since the earlier mid-1960s. So you can do some analysis focusing on this rather than overall taxes or spending. And again, same conclusion. It's very difficult uh, uh, to reach a, a compelling conclusion from, from our existing evidence, our existing real-world evidence at the, the country level that says – that uh, at least going up to 50% or so of GDP has systematic um, detrimental right. effects on the economy. You know, one of the counter arguments I hear to this, and I'm sure you've heard it more than a few times from, from many conservatives, is that, sure, but it would have growth would have been even better if taxes had been lower and government would have been smaller. And, and uh, I'm wondering what, what sort of counter is there to, to this argument? I, I, if you have one, I'd sure like to hear it because it would be very useful for me in talking to some of my conservative friends. Right. Well, it's a, it's a counterfactual that, of course, you know, of course, we can't definitively say that, that it's wrong. But again, based on the experience um, the historical evidence we have here in the U.S. and, and the cross-country comparative evidence, it seems more likely than not that that type of argument is wrong. If it were true, we would expect to have seen faster economic growth in the U.S. back right. in the first half of the 20th century when our government was much smaller, and that's not what we observe. If it were true, we'd expect to see faster economic growth in the U.S. than in countries like Denmark and Sweden. Again, not what we observe. Right. You know, I've, I've been reading uh, recently a book by uh, Anthony Cronman. He's a, a philosopher and a former dean at uh, Yale, uh, who is called Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan, which seems kind of off topic, but bear with me for a minute. Um, in it, he argues that we've moved to a society based on entitlements. And as part of that move, gratitude has almost really vanished as a public virtue. And and if I understand him correctly, he's saying that this has sort of helped to create a more uh, atomistic society with fewer really close ties of friendship and camaraderie between people. And and I'm wondering if you'd agree with this, if, if you think that maybe a move to an entitlement-based society has this sort of a potential negative unintended consequence. I suspect that it's true. I, I would like to see a, a good empirical analysis to, to feel more confident, but, but I pretty strongly suspect that there is something to this. And I think it's part of a, a broader phenomenon or pattern that we observe, which, which is part and parcel, I think, of modernity. It's not, not just due to creating, if you want to call it an entitlement state or, again, a, an array of public insurance programs. Um, but it's part of the fact that uh, we're no longer confined to the community that we grew up in. You know, it's pretty easy for us to to have geographical mobility um, these days. Uh, so we can leave our family and uh, and friends uh, and, and neighborhood and school and so on. Uh, um, it's more easy for us to switch employers. So the ties that we might develop with our coworkers. Uh, uh, tend to be less. And now with modern communications and the internet uh, and entertainment, it's a lot easier for us to to pass our free time uh, entertained without engaging or interacting with our neighbors. So I, th I think we, we see in many respects 
a decline of a certain form or a certain version or certain aspects of community. Um, this has really been going on, I think, for uh, for more than a century, really, since the Industrial Revolution. Um, I do think that government public insurance programs contribute to this. I don't really have a good sense of how large a role they play relative to some of this other stuff, modern transportation, yeah. communication, um, modern labor markets, uh, and, and so on. And there's another aspect of this that I think is worth um, pondering, which is that you, you can think of all of these develops that I've, developments that I mentioned as um, destructive of community, but also enabling of freedom yeah. or liberty. So part of what happens when we're able to leave the neighborhood that we grew up in or, you know, not have to live with our parents for our whole lives um, in an extended family. Um, so we, we may lose some contact. We may lose some gratitude. We lose some bonds um, that that do have a certain value that that um, that are at least for some people really good things and th that is a real loss. But at the same time, we have much more autonomy uh, or freedom or liberty, um, and that also can be very valuable. Right, and we certainly so we certainly also have much more security than we would have in the absence of all these programs when we were just relying on private charity as well. I would imagine. Yes, that's right. Um, and and here, here I want to mention one other thing that um, that separates to some extent countries like Denmark and Sweden from the United States. And in addition to the level of generosity and the, and the number of risks that they insure against, they're more likely to create programs that are run through the government rather than relying on employers. So health insurance is a great example. Right. We uh, in the U.S., for peculiar historical reasons, having to do with uh, wage and price controls during World War II and then a, a, um, a tax benefit that was set up after the war, we've had a very heavily employer-based uh, system of health insurance. And that works okay for a lot of people, um, but until the Affordable Care Act, which – made it difficult, if not impossible, for insurers, health insurers to um, to refuse to, to take on new people who had pre-existing conditions. Um, but even with the Affordable Care Act, there's an incentive for people who have a, a good health insurance program with their current employer to, to not leave uh, in search of a better opportunity. Right. Um, and that's that's a constraint. Um, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, but all things considered, it's uh, it creates both greater security and more freedom uh, and autonomy if you if you do these things uh, separate from employers yeah. through the, the tax system. Yeah. Do do Americans even want the sort of well big government or larger government that comes with a more expansive uh, social safety net? You know, if you listen to politicians uh, on both the left and the right, it, it seems like it's a no. I, I think back to over 20 years ago, right, when in his uh, 1996 State of the Union address, Bill Clinton, who's so certainly no one's idea of a conservative, famously said, the era of big government is over. I, so is this something that the American public even desires, do you think? Um, I think – so the the context in which Clinton made that statement was one of uh, coming off of 12 years of uh, Republican presidencies and the, the right and conservative arguments in favor of small government were very much ascendant at that moment. Um, and it 
it had been true that after the the deep um, double dip recession in the early 1980s that the economy grew fairly well uh, for the rest of the 1980s up up until the early 90s recession and I think a lot of people at that time were uncertain whether that uh, had vindicated the the Reagan type argument that we had we had overshot a little bit on the size of our government. Um, also, you know, the, the Republicans took the House of Representatives in 1994, and it was a very aggressive Republican Party led by Newt Gingrich. So it was a moment where I think for strictly electoral political reasons, it you know, probably made sense for Bill Clinton to, to claim that the era of, of big government was over. Right. Um, I I think he certainly was wrong. Our government, uh, we do have fewer federal government employees now, but the, the size of our government in many other respects hasn't shrunk in the subsequent 20 years, and, and I doubt it's going to uh, shrink much. Uh, and there, are, there are some areas in which I think it would be good uh, if we had less government, um, some regulations in particular. But in terms of, uh, of public social insurance programs, uh, as I've, I've mentioned, I, I think we're likely to expand. Now, is that what... Americans, uh, um, what the people want. Um, here, I, I think it's really important to separate two things. One is ideology and one is views about particular programs. So we know from a very extensive array of public opinion surveys that go back about half a century that Americans, relative to their counterparts in many other rich democratic nations, are ideologically fairly conservative uh, with respect to the size of government. If you ask them questions about what level of government they like or if they think government wastes a lot of money or if they trust government to do the right thing, you'll get a lot of Americans, usually a, a fairly healthy majority of 60 to 70 percent, um, who give the small government type of, of answer. They think government wastes a lot. They don't trust it to do the right thing. They prefer a small, they say they prefer a smaller government with fewer services rather than a, a bigger government that provides more services. Um, so ideologically conservative. But if you ask Americans about specific programs, almost any program you want to ask about, with two exceptions, one is foreign aid and the other is welfare. Right. Um, but, but even with welfare, if you instead ask them about assistance to the poor, They'll almost always very healthy, very sizable majorities will say we're uh, currently spending either about the right amount or too little. Very few will say we're currently spending too much on these programs. So essentially what we what we know, and there's a pretty strong consensus among political scientists about this, is that Americans are ideologically conservative but programmatically progressive, right. programmatically liberal. And we, and we see this playing out right now with respect to Affordable Care Act. If you ask them if they like that program, a lot of people will say no. If you ask them about the particular components of the program, the, the particular yeah. things that it does, uh, you, you tend to get much higher shares of, of Americans saying that they support the program. Yeah, definitely. Don't, don't want to cut back or repeal. You know, one thing, it seems to me that for for us to continue to expand uh, social programs and protections, which I, I, I think that we, we should do, that – for this to be sustainable, it's going to require a change to uh, our tax system. And I was wondering, number one, if if you agree with that, and number two, do you think that there's the the public will to go along with that sort of change? Um, I I do think that's problematic, but ultimately, it's not going to be um, um, so big an obstacle that it can't be overcome. That is to say. 
um, Americans do really dislike paying taxes. Of course, you you find people in almost every country who will will say that if oh, you sure. simply ask them if they'd rather pay more in taxes, yeah. most people will say no. Um, Americans are are a little stronger in that uh, in that view, but they're they're not unique. But it, it it certainly is a problem. It's all things considered, it's hard to um, to get any kind of public support for increasing taxes. But it nevertheless can be done. Um, and you know, one good example we saw in in recent years was this. Um, new tax that was part of the Affordable Care Act on Americans with high incomes that uh, that helps pay for health insurance. You're also seeing this um, at the state level sometimes. So California a few years ago uh, put on the the ballot an initiative or had on the the ballot an initiative to impose a new tax on uh, millionaires that would help to increase funding for public education. It was a temporary one, but just in uh, in this most recent election in 2016, they voted it back in again or, or voted to, to continue it. Yeah. These, are, these are just examples, and they could be exceptions to the rule, but um, I, I think they suggest that it's not impossible to, to get tax increases in the United States. Well, you, now, what types of taxes? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I was saying, well, you know, along those lines, one of the things that I'm sure you've seen this as well is that there seems to be a lot of misinformation about uh, exactly who's paying what in taxes. I mean, I've seen surveys that uh, when Americans are asked what percentage of uh, what percentage of income do rich people pay in taxes, and those percentages are far, far higher than they actually pay. And, and so I'm wondering if maybe better education, if people realized how low or how much lower the tax burden on the wealthy is than they think it is, if that might make a difference. Yeah, I think it would. Um, so the, the the best estimates that I've seen, which come from um, uh, Citizens for Tax Justice, there there are a few other organizations like the Tax Policy Center that try to make these estimates. It's not easy. the The thing that we want to calculate is what's often called the effective tax rate. So that's just uh, how much you pay in taxes to all levels of government, all types of taxes, divided by your pre tax income. Um, and the, the best estimates I've seen suggest that even for the top 1%, that figures somewhere in the neighborhood of, of a third. So it's about 33 to 35% mm-hmm. taking in all kinds of tax. If you go to the top uh, 0.1% or 0.01%, it may be a little bit higher. But that's not a, a, a very high tax rate. Um, and and I, I think... What a lot of Americans, especially in the last 10 years or so, are, are beginning to realize is that there's been a big shift in the income distribution in the country. Um, and so the not only the, the shares uh, or the share of income that goes to folks at the top uh, has increased, but the, the, the dollar amounts uh, of income going to, to folks at the top of the distribution are so very, very high now that, that certainly they could afford to pay more. Um, and so I, I, I think um, it's not too difficult to get a, a sizable share of Americans on board with uh, incremental, fairly minor increases in tax rates on those with uh, with top incomes. Right. Now, um, it's an interesting question of how far you can go with that kind of strategy. I think it makes sense. Um, you know, the logic of progressive taxation is fundamentally that those with very high incomes or, or the highest incomes can afford to pay more, not only more dollars, but but a higher share of their income in taxes. 
and they've gotten a lot higher share of the income over the last generation or so, and so presumably they could uh, afford to, to pay a bit more. Um, but if we really want a, a very sizable expansion of, uh, of public insurance programs, you know, let's say somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% of GDP, I don't mean this is going to happen in the, the right. near future, yeah. but you know, if you're thinking about the long run, can you get all that money from the rich? And, and if you do a few simple calculations, it turns out the answer is no. And so I, I think realistically at some point – the U.S. will will need to adopt something like a value-added tax. That is to say, a national yeah. sales or national consumption tax. Uh, that that's the the main difference that separates our tax system from most other rich democratic countries is that we only have fairly small scale right. state and local consumption taxes. Yeah. Now, a lot of the left hates the idea of consumption tax because it's regressive, um, but it can be structured in such a way that it's not particularly regressive, and it can be combined with uh, uh, other changes to the income tax or other types of taxes that, that hit the, those with top incomes harder so that overall um, you, you could structure the tax system more progressively. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting issue, the value-added tax, because I've, I've seen it sort of cut across ideological uh, normal boundaries, and I, I find people on the right who are for it and people on the left who are against it, and it suggests to me that Maybe there's the possibility at some point of actually building some sort of a at least somewhat bipartisan coalition to make that happen. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. The, the, the non-progressive structure of it appeals to some on the right. The fact that it's a source of revenue appeals to some on the left. And um, yeah, I, I, I suspect that at some point um, the interest in favor of it uh, may be strong enough to to lead to a creation of something like yeah. that at the, the federal government level. You know, one of the you mentioned income inequality, and of course that's been a huge issue in recent years. And uh, I, I don't think anyone who looks at the data can deny that it's increased a whole lot. But it seems to me that there's an awful lot less agreement as to why that's happened. And I know this is one of your areas, at least in, in some part of research. And so I'm wondering what do you see as the main things driving this increase in income inequality? Um, well, I, I think it would be convenient, um, both in, in intellectual terms and also on policy grounds, if there were a simple story. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and a lot of people tell a, a simple story. Um, but I, the, the more I look into this, read and, and analyze the more convinced I am that it's actually a very complicated story. So income inequality has been going up in the United States since the, the late 1970s. Um, the, the main form of this is the separation between those at the top, you know, roughly speaking, the top 1% and everybody else. So income inequality within the, the lower 99% did increase in the 1980s and a little bit in the early 90s. And it's gone up a little bit more since then. But the, the real story is uh, the divergence between the, the top and, and everyone else. And I just don't think there's a, a simple causal story. I don't think there's one or two or even three or four um, dominant uh, causes here. I, I kind of group the causes into, I think, six or seven that I think are the most important. So mm -hmm. one is the growth in product market size, that's partly a globalization and partly a technological change story, but uh, the fact that companies and um, financial organizations uh, now 
have seven billion potential customers rather than just three hundred million or so right. is um, is important. Um, also, the fact that they can reach them and that's largely a technology uh, change story that matters a lot. I think changes in corporate governance, the shift to the shareholder value orientation, which begins in the late seventies, that's made a, a big difference. Um, along with changes in forms of executive pay setting, in particular the shift to stock options. Um, Increasingly hearing people like Joseph Stiglitz tell a, a story that focuses on increases in the market power of large firms in certain industries. Mm -hmm. I think that may be important, but I think it's sometimes overstated. I, I, I don't really think that's been uh, anything near like the dominant cause of the growth in income inequality, but it's probably contributed. Financialization certainly is, is key. Oh, yeah. um, soaring stock market values. Not so much in a kind of 1920s sense um, where the, the top 1% own a lot of stock uh, and so the, the value of that's going up and they're selling it and getting capital gains, but more simply that a lot of the pay of those in the, the top 1%, especially the top 0.1%, is tied to the, the stock market, whether it's because of stock options or, or people in the financial industry. Um, <clears throat> and then – the two other things I think I'd mention or, or emphasize are union weakening, union decline, oh, yeah. and then uh, the reductions in the top tax rates, although I think that's the, the impact of that is sometimes overstated. So all of these things contribute. There are probably others. Um, one that gets a lot of attention is education, but I, I don't think that's really contributed much if at all, to this separation between the 1% and everyone else. You know, I think it's one of the, the frustrations that we as, as social scientists face is so often the answers to these questions aren't the sort of simple things that seem to capture the headlines, but it's a, a complex story with, as you put it before, a lot of moving parts. And it's a lot harder to make a compelling argument to get people on board when, when the, the situation is so very complex. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, but, that's, but it's not only politicians, but also academics that have a an incentive to to try to simplify, oh, sure. try to focus on one or one or two dominant determinants. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I just I just don't think um, I, I don't think that works no. for this this particular phenomenon. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Now, I know you've been working on a book called The Good Society, and I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of a, a, a preview of that. Well, what I'm trying to do in this book, and it's only about halfway done, but it's a massive, sprawling kind of thing. And, and by the way, just in case any of your listeners are interested, I'm, I'm putting it all online. So if you, if you just look up my name, Lane Kenworthy, you'll get to my webpage pretty easily. And, uh, and all of these chapters are, are just going up one by one um, on this site. But essentially, what I'm trying to do is um, uh, continue um, – with uh, the investigation that I began with the Social Democratic America book, which is into and really in some ways runs throughout the research I've been doing for several decades now. Um, the, the big question here is what are the institutions and policies that contribute to a, a, a good society? And so I'm trying to think more about what the um, what a good society would consist of. Most of my research has focused on things like economic growth and employment, poverty, inequality, uh, opportunity. Uh, but there's a lot more health, happiness, um, safety, uh, uh, civic engagement, tolerance. 
So there are, there are all sorts of things that we might want. And so I'm, I'm trying to, to broaden my investigation and, um, and see to what extent this configuration of institutions and policies that in my earlier book I called social democracy and, and other people refer to it uh, as that as well, um, you know, namely a, a capitalist economy with this very extensive and generous layer of public insurance programs um, and also uh, uh, a set of institutions and policies that are conducive to uh, employment, whether this has any other costs or drawbacks, you know, whether it really weakens civic engagement, this kind of gets at something we talked about earlier, um, having to do with gratitude and, and community, or whether there are costs in, in happiness, for example, uh, or safety, or something else that I, I just hadn't really considered, and that a lot of economists um, don't don't really factor into the equation uh, as well, but not just economists, political scientists, sociologists, policymakers, and uh, and many others too. So really, it's just uh, I mean the, the simple version or the simple answer to your question is it's a, a broadening of the argument and evidence I looked at in uh, in social democratic America. Yeah, and I know that there are already, as you pointed out, the parts of it that are already up there, and I've I've taken a look at some of them, and it's just some really good stuff there and I would encourage listeners to, to definitely check that out and we'll, I'll make sure to put the uh, the link to the site there uh, in the show notes for, for this show but definitely worth uh, worth checking out I'm looking forward to more um, you know one final question I'd like to ask you and that aside from your books and 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 your your website with the good society uh, what Books, websites, documentaries, podcasts, whatever, uh, other resources, would you recommend to people who want to become more informed about social policy in the United States? I think on social policy in the United States, to, to my mind, the single best website is, um, is the one of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, or cbpp.org. Mm-hmm. I think it probably is. Anyway, it'd be easy to, to find. They have a great set of policy briefs or background papers on almost every uh, element of uh, or every social policy program, at least at the federal level, and a bunch of stuff at the, the state level, too. They're short. They're crisp. They're very informative. They're very data-driven. Uh, so I think that's that's a, a great place to start. And for those who might be interested in, uh, in cross-country information. I'll, I'll put in a plug for the Luxembourg Income Study, or LIS, L-I-S, um, is the acronym. They've got a great website, which not only provides data, but uh, um, has a, a, a links to a, a whole array of working papers that are, are very informative and, and, and often pretty easy to read. Okay, well, that's uh, I'll definitely put links to those up too. I'm I'm, I'm looking to digging into some of that myself. So with that, we will close. Uh, Professor Lane Kenworthy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. If there's someone you'd like to hear us interview on the show, or if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you happen to use. And sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. 
If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoy the show, you should definitely check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.